This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. morning it's wednesday february 14 2024 welcome to now with dave brown coming to you on ami tv i'm alex mike in for dave let's hit those horns and go Coming up on this show today, it's Valentine's Day, but we have a lot of great topics coming up. The Roundtable on Black History Month is hosting a series of programming in Montreal. Fimo Mitchell shares some highlights from those events. The Montreal Open Goalball Tournament wrapped up last month, and Peter Parsons stops by to recap the event for you. And as I mentioned, it is Valentine's Day. Love is in the air. But how do you feel about the holiday? Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore will share their thoughts. All that and more to come. But we begin with the top news stories of the day. Bell Media executives have been called to Ottawa to explain the company's decisions to cut thousands of jobs. Nicole Reese has more. BCE, the parent company of Bell Media, announced last week it is cutting its workforce by 4,800 positions, ending multiple television newscasts, and selling off 45 of its 103 radio stations. The House of Commons Heritage Committee has agreed to invite BCE CEO Mirko Bibic to address the cuts, which include impacts on newsrooms across the country. The Liberal motion to invite the executives on February 29th was supported by the NDP and Bloc Québécois, with the Conservatives on the committee abstaining from voting. The company blames its cuts on the federal government and the CRTC, saying Ottawa took too long to provide relief to media companies in crisis. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. On the international front, concerns are being raised about Iran's nuclear capabilities. Inez de la Catera files this report. The head of the United Nations nuclear watchdog warning that Iran is not entirely transparent when it comes to its nuclear program. This comes after an official who previously led Tehran's efforts announced the Islamic Republic has all the pieces for a weapon in its hands. U.S. intelligence agencies and others believe Iran has accumulated enough enriched uranium to build several weapons if it chooses, but that the country has yet to launch a weapons program. Inez de la ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. And now there's a couple of tech stories I wanted to bring your attention to. First off, U.S. tech companies are coming together to sign an agreement to combat AI-generated disinformation leading up to the election. Norman Hall uh, covers the story. At least six major technology companies are planning to sign an agreement this week that would guide how they try to put a stop to the use of artificial intelligence tools to disrupt democratic elections. The upcoming event at the Munich Security Conference in Germany comes as more than 50 countries are due to hold national elections in 2024. Attempts at AI-generated election interference have already begun. AI robocalls mimicked President Joe Biden's voice to try to discourage people from voting in New Hampshire's primary election last month. I'm Norman Hall. And there have been a, ser- a rise of cyber attacks at public institutions in Toronto. Karen Rebo brings you that story. 
A few months after the Toronto Public Library was hit with a crippling cyber attack it is still recovering from, another city-owned institution suffered a digital breach. The Toronto Zoo announced last month that personal information of its current and former employees had been stolen. Charles Finley, the head of Rogers Cybersecure Catalyst at Toronto Metropolitan University, says public organizations make good targets because they store lots of personal employee data and because taxpayers expect them to be open and functioning. He suggests they embrace two-factor authentication and regular software and password updates. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press, Toronto. Finally, rideshare and food delivery workers plan to band together and strike today to improve uh, in an effort to improve wages and working conditions. Michelle Franson has the details. Whether heading out or ordering in for Valentine's Day, you may want to have a backup plan. That's because workers of popular rideshare companies and food delivery services are opting to rally and shut off their apps during certain hours. Thousands of Uber, Lyft and DoorDash drivers are planning a Cupid's Day strike at major airports nationwide, demanding fair pay and safer working conditions. Uber says most of its workers are driving and not picketing and won't impact service. Michelle Franz and ABC News. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the Daily Poll. We'll begin with yesterday's results where I asked you how much do online reviews impact your decision to consume media? 12% of you said a lot, 52% said a little, and 36% said not at all. We had a couple of responses in. First on Facebook, Ashley wrote, not at all. I find that people are more likely to review something when they really hate it or are obsessed with it. I don't find the true in the middle review, so I don't really use them when making my decisions. Liliana wrote, What kind of media do you mean specifically? If you mean movies and TV shows, not at all. If I'm trying to decide if I really want to watch something, 99% of the time I ask friends rather than reading a review by some random stranger on the internet. Usually in my circle, I am the one recommending things because I watch a lot of movies and documentaries. Over on X, we had a couple of responses as well. Studio Brock tweeted, Here's my hot take. I hunt down spoilers instead. I can absolutely still enjoy something when I know plot points. Letting the content speak for itself will always be the best review, as art is subjective. That's a very interesting take by Studio Brock. I don't know if I would go that route. But we also had one more response from Jason who tweeted, Reviews are written by people, and people have terrible taste that's uh, that's definitely a good good take to have on that one there jason okay that was yesterday's daily poll today i'm asking you the simple question because it is valentine's day today do you celebrate valentine's day yes or no let's welcome in Laura Bain and Elizabeth Muller to get their perspectives. Elizabeth, we'll start with you. Do you celebrate Valentine's Day? You know what? I would say I do, but probably not in the traditional way that people um, think about. So I tend to focus on reaching out to friends just to say how much I appreciate their friendship and what they've been able to do to support me over the over the year. I read a really interesting article in The Globe today that talked about 
how um, you know friendships are um, just as important as romantic relationships. So I try to show that that um, you know platonic love for people in my life. Um, I also try to do things uh, around self love, whether it's you know a good fitness workout or um, just eating something I enjoy. Um, and of course, you know everybody loves candy, so so you know perhaps having a little bit of that. But I think for me, it's more about recognizing um, the people in my life. I'm I'm not big into the commercialism. Um, most of the cards I can't read anyway. I don't have enough vision, but uh, I'm not big into sort of going out to the fancy restaurants and, uh, you know, spending uh, a bunch of money. But I think the simple, the simple acts of kindness and love are, are things that I really try to do. And, and just, you know, it's interesting, St. Valentine not only was the saint of love, but the saint of uh, supporting people with epilepsy and beekeepers. And I love bees. So I think St. Valentine and I had something in common, Alex. <laughs> That's a great response. And I appreciate that you're, you kind of take the time to, to not only express love to, you know, the ones that are, are being promoted to, but also just the people in your life that mean something to you. So that's always great to hear. Laura Bain, what about you? Do you celebrate Valentine's Day? I'm going to say yes, but not in a big way. So this morning I had, you know, a little card and, and just like a very small gift for my partner when he got up. Apparently my gift is out for delivery, which is fine. <laughs> That's very typical of my partner. He tends to be very last minute with things. But um, I think it's good not to put too much pressure on this day. I find that that's where a lot of uh, things can go wrong with Valentine's Day. But I'll second what Elizabeth says that said that I don't think it has to be just about romantic love. So, uh, you know, when I was younger, my parents always got Valentine's Day cards for my sister and I and just like a little um, candy or treat like that. And, you know, one of the best Valentine's Day days that I've had that I remember was actually a day that I spent with a friend and we went to an event at a local mosque that was focused on like spreading love in the community. So yeah, I, 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 I think that where Valentine's Day becomes fraught is when it is too focused just on the romantic love side of things and when there's too much pressure put on that one day. Yeah, absolutely. And you both mentioned it. It's like, it's it's not about the roses. It's not about all the chocolate. It's about the actual expression of compassion, love, appreciation. And I, I think that's really where you get that, the heart of what, whether or not you believe it's a holiday, the day is should be all about, and unfortunately, you know, with, with anything in society, commercialism likes to take its way, and then, oh, you need to spend $20 on a card, you need to spend a dozen, uh, like, uh, countless money on flowers and balloons, and you got to go big and grandiose with the expression of... I just appreciate, as both of you said, just, I do just love a simple balloons, message. Though. Oh, I, I would take yeah. some balloons. Although I think <laughs> the theme song for today should be One Love. I mean, what a mm -hmm. great song. You know, Bob yep. Marley's One Love. Just love for everybody all around. Very good. Elizabeth, thank you. Laura, thank you. Uh, don't go anywhere. We will be checking in with both of you later on in the show. But for you at home, I want to hear from you as well. Do you celebrate Valentine's Day? Be sure to vote on the daily poll you can do so by voting on facebook at accessible media inc on x at accessible media you can also send an email feedback at ami.ca or give us a call 1-866-509-4545 coming up after the break the conversation around valentine's day continues because Love is in the air, but how do you feel about the holiday overall, whether or not you celebrate it or not celebrate it? I'm getting the perspective from Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore. You're watching now with Dave Brown 
on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming and audio at AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Mites, in for Dave. The conversation around Valentine's Day continues. It is today, February 14th. And if you thought Christmas cards were a big thing, you have it mistaken because Valentine's Day reigns supreme with over 2.6 billion cards delivered. But if you deal with anxiety, it can be a tough dance to express your outward affection and love. Is it all about the love, or is the holiday just mired with hype? Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore will break it all down with me. Jenny is the host of Low Vision Moments, which you can find on the favorite podcast platform. And Megan is a reporter with Canadian Affairs. Hello, Jenny. Hello, good morning. And hello, Megan. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. So, let's pose that first question. Is Valentine's Day truly a celebration of love, or is it just all about the hype? I'm going to start with you, Megan. Oh. Ooh. Um, I would say, I'm going to sound like a politician here. Um, I think it depends on the couple or the individual. So I, I do know people who in the past few days have been taking a lot of care to find something special for their significant other to show them their love and affection. And I think that's great. Um, Valentine's Day as a cultural thing, I think is actually really just about hype and selling chocolate and cards. But I think on the individual level, I think if you can use it as a way to show somebody that you care about, that you care about them, then sure, go ahead. And Jenny, what about you? Is it all love or all hype? Here I go trying not to sound too cynical today, but <laughs> I think I think we would be hard-pressed to find a holiday regardless of its origin that hasn't been made super commercial, turning it into a way to make money. I think that's just good business sense on the business side of things. And like you mentioned, Alex, Valentine's Day makes like billions and billions of dollars worldwide on chocolate, jewelry, flowers. And I, in true Jenny style, did a bit of a deep dive. And some people think that Valentine's Day was sort of uh, invented, if you will, by Hallmark. They did start offering cards really early on in like 1913. And as I dove deeper, the origins of Valentine's Day only got more sketchy. Like there's no real solid history. But one version says it all started with an execution of a martyr back in the Roman Empire in the late third mm -hmm. century on February 14th. How love got involved into the into the mix is also a little sketchy we think maybe that the love connection came with a chaucer poem back in the 14th century and it's possible that he just took like poetic license here to make something rhyme and there we think maybe the correlation with love came from but it's it's just fascinating to me how far back it goes. Some historians think that love messages around Valentine's Day started in the 
1800s and commercially available cards were available by like the 17 or 1800s, which just blew my mind when I looked into that. So I don't know that this gives it any more legitimacy, but there's a long history behind Valentine's Day. And yes, it can be a little too commercialized, but I'm loving everyone's take on, you know, how they do it for themselves and in their relationship. So try not to be too cynical. The history is helping me in that sense. <laughs> I, I appreciate that deep dive there, Jenning, doing the research, going back to the origin. But let me help you with this cynicism because we have some statistics that support cynicism around this day. Because back in 2019, there was a poll done by Forum Research and they found that six in 10 adults surveyed do not think Valentine's Day is important and more than three quarters don't even consider it a holiday. So what is your reaction to those numbers, Jenny? I think... I'm not surprised is my my quick answer. I think as I get older, these little holidays, Halloween, Valentine's Day, you know, they're nice. They're fun when you're a kid. We made a big deal of every holiday in my household growing up. On Valentine's Day, for example, there would be like a little food coloring heart in my sandwich. And it was just the cutest, sweetest thing. And it was a lot of fun. Aww, but I think yeah. it fizzles out as we get older, right? And um, I think deep down, even the people that, do celebrate it with their partner or do something special for themselves or in a platonic way. I think we know it's not a real holiday. It's just something, you know, it's a day to take the time to do those things. And Megan, when I read out those stats, what did, uh, what did you think of those numbers? Well, of course, people don't consider it a holiday. You don't get it off work. Like, <laughs> Good right? point, like Megan. why Why would I consider this a holiday? You're st I'm still going to work. So obviously, I don't consider it a holiday. Um, the super cynical part of me was like, well, do people even care about their committed relationships, right? Like, if the whole premise of Valentine's Day mattering to you is that there is a relationship or relationships in your life that matter enough to you and there may be some people, I'm not saying people on this segment, I'm just saying people in general society who may not actually have relationships that mean enough to them that they would bother celebrating it. But yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Like what Jenny said, I mean, when you're a kid at school, Valentine's Day, at least when we were growing up, was a thing, right? Like, and like your whole day of school gets kind of upended by Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. When you're an adult, nobody cares. Like, they're like, go to work, do your job. I'm not giving you a nice heart-shaped <laughs> shortbread cookie for lunch. Like... This isn't happening. You have to continue on with your life. So yeah, we're we're not getting those little like um, a Kleenex box or paper bag cutouts. We don't spend our work day, yeah. you know, making all the decorative designs, going around the office, giving everyone the Valentine's <laughs> Day cards. You know, I I personally miss the Ninja Turtles and like Power Ranger Valentine's Day cards. All these like weird collabs that used to happen when you were a kid. That's just like. Why, why am I getting a Power Ranger saying, like, be my Valentine? I don't know. I enjoyed it, nonetheless. It, it, it got me into the holiday. But um, now, Jenny, you had mentioned uh, a, the part that it can add pressure. So, Megan, do you, do you ever feel extra pressure uh, on Valentine's Day to express love and, and you know, just uh, affection to those around you, whether it's, you know, just people in your life or romantically, like, do you feel the extra pressure? Really extra pressure. Um, good question. Uh, not really, I'd say. Um, so I've never had the opportunity to express it in a romantic way on Valentine's mm -hmm. Day. So I guess I've never dealt with it in that aspect. Um, I do try to send my niece and nephew Valentine's Day cards. 
so I don't know if that's pressure, just more me remembering what day Valentine's Day is and <laughs> like that that's about it. Um, no, I don't I I don't feel a ton of pressure. I also don't I'm not gonna be texting everybody I know today to say happy Valentine's Day. If you text me to say happy Valentine's Day, I will text you back with the same. And there's some people that I will be reaching out to specifically today. Mainly how I will try to celebrate Valentine's Day is I will think of people I know who are either single or have perhaps uh, like lost a spouse or a significant other and mm-hmm. will try to like reach out to them around this time of year. Um, but that's about it. Yeah. And, and Jenny, you said, you know, there can't be the pressure. Do you feel the pressure to celebrate extra on Valentine's Day? It's really rare that I feel pressure to do anything that I don't <laughs> feel like doing. Um, but I, it, it is out there, right? Let's acknowledge that there is real pressure out there. And as I'm being asked this question, I'm realizing I didn't even wish my husband a happy Valentine's Day this morning. But I want to argue maybe a little bit for the fact that those of us who I've been in a relationship with the same person for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And honestly, throughout our whole relationship, Valentine's Day has never really been a thing. In my adult life, it's not really a thing. And I think that's because for us in our situation, we're really intentional about showing our appreciation and love for each other in like lots of different ways all throughout the year. Um, And so if I don't get flowers, if I don't get candy today, I will be totally fine with that. Uh, I will also be fine if anyone wants to give me those things or send me love (laughs) messages. I will take the gifts. I will. I will not turn them down. Uh, but I don't feel the pressure to to go out there and 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 even really text people in my life because I try to do that on an ongoing basis. Not to sound too self righteous, but mm-hmm. like that's how I feel about it. And I, but I do sympathize with particularly single folks or folks who are in relationships where they do feel that pressure because it can be expensive and mm-hmm. it can give us unrealistic expectations and then we can have that FOMO that the industries, (laughs) the flower and jewelry industries want us to feel right. If you don't get a nice piece of jewelry or a nice bouquet, you know, you're being told that you should feel a certain way, but I disagree with that. Don't feel pressure. Well, and, and, and that's certainly something too. like, I, I do feel it, you know, I, I'm in a relationship. I've been in one for, you know, obviously not as long as, as you have uh, there, Jenny, but like, when it is a kind of newer relationship, you feel that pressure. It's like, okay, you want to make sure you're showing the right amount of affection, appreciation for the person. You you want to kind of go through the pomps and circumstance a little bit. But especially when you see, like, as you mentioned, those jewelry commercials where it's like, oh, no, like, do I need to do I need to go extra, uh, like, this year? Do I need to go and, and splurge on, you know, necklace or, or, or something like that? Or is just some those small acts of appreciation... Um, you know, is that it, it, not that it should be enough, but you, you feel it's like, is this enough? You know, and, and, and that really comes down to what is the relationship? What are the dynamics of the relationship overall? Another way I, I do feel pressure, though, February 14th is also my best friend's birthday. So I, I always have to feel the pressure to wish him a happy birthday. And I feel it's a quite an unfortunate day to have a birthday on Valentine's Day. But nonetheless, I li- like to welcome that. Now, there are some alternative ways to celebrate. If it's not all about the the uh, the flowers, you know, the jewelry, the chocolates, some brands and companies have offered up alternatives, maybe whether or not you are not in a specific relationship, maybe you've just gone through a breakup. 
I'm curious what you guys think of some of these alternatives on Valentine's Day. Some are, are a bit more well-known, like uh, restaurants like Hooters used to offer, you know, free wings. If you brought in a, a photo of your, your ex and you would shred it, you would get some free wings. I always thought that was fun. The Toronto Zoo has an annual tradition that you can name a cockroach after your ex-partner. Uh, uh, or even this year, this is a new one to me. I think it's really fun. Pizza Pizza is giving away a free medium pizza if you come in as a third wheel with another couple. So if you're a single person, you're coming in with a couple, you get a free pizza. And apparently, too, they're also changing their name for the day to Pizza Pizza Pizza. Megan, first reaction to those ideas. Okay, so on the pizza pizza one, when I read that, I seriously thought of just calling couples I know and being like, hey, guys, do you want to go out for pizza on mm -hmm, Valentine's mm -hmm. Day? Um, so, yeah, my reaction was, oh, I could get a free pizza out of this. I like free things. Cool. Like, you guys can go pay for your pizza, or he can, and um, <laughs> I'll I'll just get a free ride out of it. Like, cool. Um, I'm up with that. Um I can see how some people may find the Hooters and the Toronto Zoo one humorous. Um, I'm a big country music fan. I like a good revenge song um, on in the background sometimes. It just gets the energy out. I don't know how healthy that is for all people mm -hmm. at all times. So um, proceed with caution. Also, are you really over the person if you're taking the time to go all the way to the Toronto Zoo to name a cockroach after them? Like, really? That or you I have to print like off a photo too. Out. That's the yeah. other thing. That's a whole other right. level of de uh, dedication. Right. Yeah. Jen Jenny, what do you think of uh, these ideas? I think, first of all, great marketing. Mm -hmm. Second of all, it, it does require a lot of follow through to go through with these, printing off the photo, going to the zoo. Um, oh, clearly as well, only the classiest of establishments come <laughs> up with these creative things. There, I, I, I'm all about like, living your best life as a form of revenge. I get along with most of my exes with a couple of very big exceptions. I have a couple of landlords I would like to have a cockroach named after <laughs> so maybe we can get flexible with that one. And Megan, just a hot tip for you. It, it, just any three people can go get a free pizza. Like let's, let's put that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. out there. Jenny, <laughs> why are you in Halifax? Night, though? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> to me, this is just a Wednesday night, but these are great marketing ideas. Good job. <laughs> yep. Okay, uh, so before I let you two go, I want to ask the big question. How are you celebrating Valentine's Day today? Jenny, we'll start with you. How are you planning to celebrate? I have a program with some students that I serve uh, through my day job as a mentor. So we're going to be making chocolate cake in a mug, and that's going to be my activity for the evening. Nice. And Megan, what about yourself? I'm wearing a red sweater, guys. Okay. That, there you go. There you go. And you can't see it on air, but it has pink at the bottom. So that was me celebrating Valentine's Day. You're welcome. Um, me too, Megan. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. See, we did it. We did our, we did our duty. Um, yeah, I don't know. Oh, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm doing anything today. We'll see what happens. But on the weekend, I am getting together with a bunch of like girlfriends, and we're going to see the Professional Women's Hockey League game in nice. Ottawa. And we, yeah, we totally were like, let's just call it a Galentine's thing and get a bunch of women and their daughters together and go watch Professional Women's Hockey. So that's what we're doing. 
I appreciate it. Unfortunately, I, I clearly did not get the memo. I am not wearing red. I am not wearing pink. It completely flew flat, uh, past my mind to even think about that. So, uh, unfortunately, being in Toronto away from the girlfriend, I'm spending it in the hotel room, just enjoying myself with some takeout and watching whatever is on Netflix, but I'll celebrate on the weekend. Jenny, thank you. Megan, thank you. Have yourselves a wonderful day. You sure. Happy Valentine's Day. That was Jenny Bovard, who is the host of Low Vision Moments podcast, and Megan Gilmore is a reporter with National Affairs. Coming up after the break, the Montreal Open Goalball Tournament wrapped up last month. Peter Parsons stopped by to give you a recap of the event. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. The Montreal Open Goalball Tournament wrapped up last month. Team Nova Scotia took some uh, hardware home with them from the event, and Peter Parson is a member of Team Nova Scotia, and he is here to share a recap of the event. Peter is also the chair of Blind Sports Nova Scotia. Hello, Peter. How are you doing today? Good, Dave. How are you? Or, sorry, Alex. How are you? <laughs> I'm not too bad. It's fine. I'll, I'll let you have that slip. You you had a few things on your mind, Peter. So don't keep us in suspense. How did you and the rest of Team Nova Scotia do at the Montreal Open? Well, our men's team uh, won the gold medal, um, and our women's team won uh, silver. Uh, for our men's, uh, it was. Uh, it was a really big tournament because this was our first time we won uh, a major tournament. Um, and since like 2016 nationals, we've been knocking on the door the last couple of years. Um, and it's our first time with the younger group of guys that we have. Um, and so that was really exciting. And for our girls, um, it was kind of a foregone conclusion that Ontario are going to win the, the girls tournament, the women's tournament, because um, their starting lineup to the national team uh, or uh, the Ontario team, uh, you know, the, the, the team candidate who just uh, qualified for Paris by winning the pair of Pan Ams um, in Santiago in November. Um, and so when our girls won the semifinal game against Alberta, that was, uh, that was winning the silver to them in a way. And they, and they gave Ontario a good game, um, probably their best game. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was really good, uh, good, results for Nova Scotia goalball. Well, first of all, congratulations on winning the gold. That's a huge accomplishment. How did you find the competition overall and in the quality of the competition at this tournament? It was really good. Uh, you know, Montreal always put on a really well-organized tournament. Uh, this year, there weren't any international teams there. It was kind of like a preview to our nationals because all the top Canadian teams were there. And so the competition, you know, it was good. It was, um, there were, um, there were a lot of close games, uh, on the men's side, um, after the round Robin, uh, we had finished first with at four and one. And then there were three teams, uh, BC, Ontario, and Alberta tied at three and two. So goal differential had to separate those, uh, those teams to determine the placing, um, 
uh, in the semifinals. So yeah, on the Saturday, there are a lot of, uh, and Friday night, there are a lot of goals scored in the round robin and it tightened up uh, closer defensive type of games in the, um, in the semis and finals. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was a really good uh, competitive uh, tournament. Now, uh, you mentioned that uh, the men's side was a bit of a younger team, and, and one of the teammates on uh, Team Nova Scotia wanted to give a shout-out to. What can you tell me about Griffin Hiltz? Yeah, so Griffin Hiltz, uh, yeah, he had a, a really breakthrough type of tournament because this was his first time starting on our top team at a, at a big tournament. Um, and he was the second leading goal scorer of the tournament. Uh, behind uh, Blair Nesbitt, who's like our best player in our country. Um, and uh, he only scored four less goals than Blair. And Griffin actually had two, two halves that he didn't play. And I know Blair played every minute of every game for Alberta. So, yeah, so it was uh, quite the feat for an 18-year-old. Griffin is 18, and uh, he started playing goal ball when he was 11. And I was coaching him from the beginning. So to be... Uh, men's teammates now um, with Griffin um, winning a tournament like Montreal Open uh, is quite special. Now, another um, kind of younger athlete that you had talked about in the past, Harry Nickerson, he and uh, Griffin have both uh, recently, it was announced that they are now uh, being named as recipients of the Athlete Assistance Program from Sport Canada. Like, what is the significance of, of them being, uh, what is known in other terms as being carded? Yeah, it, it is really huge for them um, being carded. They, they get uh, they get financial assistance um, for however many months uh, they're carded for. And that also provides um, strength and conditioning, uh, coaching and uh, nutrition and mental performance through the um, Canadian Sport Institute Atlantic um, that we're affiliated with here. And uh, and so it um, enables them to uh, take their training to another level because they're, you know, identified as uh, they're getting what they call development carding and, you know, they're real, um, have a uh, real bright future as far as prospects to go on to become Paralympians. And so like in terms of that financial support, because now they are being paid to continue training, to continue to development, how is that going to help them kind of pursue the their athletic goals even more to have that financial support? It's huge because like when when you're carded, um, it's meant so that you know maybe you don't have to work that extra part-time job while going to university or that sort of thing, and you could put put your 20 hours a week of training in to take your uh, your athletic career to the next level. And uh, there are a lot of other benefits as well like griffin is a uh, grade 12 for example and he will get um some funding towards his tuition at university next year and same thing with with harry he's a few years away but um by the time he goes to uh university um so that will that will be huge um and so it's it's really a big part of uh of taking them to the next level um for sure and you mentioned Harry is a few years younger. He's currently 14 years old. How unique or, or distinctive is it that a 14-year-old is being carded? Yeah, really, it's uh, it's unheard of, um, it's, it, at least in the goalball world, um, to be carded at such a young age. I haven't heard of anybody in all my years under the age of 18 being carded. And so, uh, you know, Harry... Uh, 
Harry's a gymnast as well. And so he's, um, he's a highly competitive gymnast. He, he qualified for gymnastics nationals this year. He's like top three in Atlantic Canada for his age category, um, which has given him the uh, athletic base, you know, the, the strength and, uh, and the explosiveness that, uh, you know, trans translates into being such a good goalball player. Um, at, uh, at 14, um, he's about to turn 15, um, here later this month. So happy early birthday to Harry, but he, uh, yeah, him and Griffin, they're like actually two of the top five hardest throwers in the country at their, at their young ages. Yeah. It, it's remarkable to see the, uh, like kind of the rise already. Cause uh, from even from when you first started, uh, talking about, about Harry and now you're, you're talking about Griffin. I mean, being part of a gold medal winning a Montreal open team, that that's a pretty good uh, start to a a career, even though it's it's been years in development. This is good early uh, progression and results that they've been finding. How bright is their future going forward within the uh, the goalball program? And are we going to potentially see them on the national team in a couple of years? Yeah, I I think so. Um, I can see them. I can see them being on the national team in uh, 2028 in LA. Um, you know, we didn't qualify for Paris and we're kind of rebuilding a bit now. And um, I could see them there before that. There's the um, junior worlds in 2025. Um, and uh, that Griffin will be just, uh, just young enough for still. Um, and Harry would have uh, 2027 junior worlds even. And, you know, there's the pair of Pan Ams in 2027, so the lead up towards LA 2028. And yeah, so uh, I think their future is really bright. I see them as Paralympians, uh, hopefully on the podium at Paralympics someday. Peter, I always appreciate when you get uh, you you bring us uh, some some younger athletes uh, to kind of keep on our radars and, and highlight how the development of the sport is. So thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day. Great. Thank you very much, Alex. That was Peter Parson. He is the chair of Blind Sports Nova Scotia. Coming up in 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller has the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index lost 2.3% yesterday on a broad-based decline following U.S. markets that slid on news that January inflation was a little hotter than expected. Toronto's TSX index dropped 482 points to close at 20,584. New York's Dow Jones average tumbled 524 points and the Nasdaq lost 286. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index fell 260 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.81 cents U.S. On the heels of Bell Media's decision to cut 9% of its workforce this year, members of Parliament on the House of Commons Heritage Committee have now invited several top executives to testify later this month about their reasoning. The United Nations' top tech official fears that corporate interests may undermine the push to rein in artificial intelligence. Amandeep Gill made the comments in an interview ahead of a global AI conference that opens in Montreal today. From the Canadian Press Business, desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. It's now time to check in with Elizabeth Moeller for the weather report. It's not all hearts and uh, roses today on the East Coast, is it, Elizabeth? Oh, 
I wish it were, unless you're going to make a heart out of snow. I don't think so. Unfortunately, a big storm is hitting the East Coast again, and we're not getting much of a break. We've been following uh, a lot of inclement winter weather from, uh, from the East Coast to, to our friends there um, over this past week. This time, it's a strong storm called the Nor'easter, and it's going to bring heavy snow, wind, rain, and blizzard conditions until the end of the day. Places like Nova Scotia and Newfoundland are under winter storm watches and warnings as that storm gets stronger and picks up today. And it does look like that storm is going to move a little bit south, meaning there's going to be a little bit less snow than we thought originally. But still, some areas are going to get anywhere from 4 to 20 inches of snow by the time it's over, so quite a range there. That snow's going to pile up quickly and it's going to be a little bit tricky to drive or walk anywhere. You won't be able to see very far due to the heavy snow and the wind and squalls that are going to occur. That strong, like I said, is going to get stronger as the day goes on. And a big area from northern Pennsylvania to Massachusetts, including Boston, is going to get a lot of snow as well. Uh, so travel is going to be tough in the northeast today with lots of delays in can and cancellations. So we're going to, you know, continue to follow that storm, Alex. And unfortunately, no break yet for our East Coast friends, but we'll be thinking of you and following this up in our weather reports. Absolutely. Elizabeth, thank you so much. We'll check in thank with you, you later in the show. Coming up after the break, the Children's Low Vision Project of BC will be hosting some sessions in Chilliwack this month. Community reporter Amy Amanti tells you all about it. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv and in streaming audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave. Many people have dealt with different challenges when it comes to air travel, but when it's done right, air travel can be one of the most satisfying methods of getting from one point to another. Amy Amanti recently had a really positive experience traveling with Air Canada. Amy is a community reporter based in Vancouver. Hello, Amy. How are you doing today? Oh, you know, uh, well, I woke up to a power outage this morning, Alex. So other than that, um, let's hope that the day gets off to a better start. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Let's, let's focus in on the positives because you did have a positive uh, experience with Air Canada. So how was that experience overall? I did, yeah. I just um, I just flew Air Canada last week. Um, I was heading to Ottawa, so I flew out from Vancouver and then back. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about what happens when things go wrong, and Air Canada has been featured on the news a lot lately for damaged wheelchairs and lost wheelchairs and, you know, um, uh, and, and uh, rightly so, right? Um, and I think oh, I had that in mind when I was boarding the plane thinking, you know, what is the mindset of Air Canada um, these days, knowing that somebody with a disability is boarding the plane, right? Um, and so I was uh, boarding the plane, and I was literally smothered almost. On the, from Vancouver to Ottawa, it was almost a little bit too much in that 
you know, the woman was, you know, she almost didn't leave me alone with the access. Was just checking in every 10 minutes and, and like it was over the top. Um, so maybe a little bit too much access, but on the way home, I mean, like people, uh, uh, they were uh, um, showing me exactly where my um, life vest was, which has almost never happened to me before, right? Mm-hmm. Taking it out so I could feel it, um, taking out the um, the air mask so I could feel it in my hands and, and uh, mimicking where it drops from the ceiling, um, going through protocols, walking me to the, the, the door of the plane, uh, where the exit would be so I could check out what that feels like before the plane takes off. Right? I've never been able to feel that door. That door is like, no, don't touch that door, right? <laughs> um, so these things were all happening, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've never had this experience before. Um, and it was really nice to, to, to be able to explore those things and feel like, um, like, my eye, like my eyes and my hands were connected to that kind mm. of experience. So. Um, and then I was just treated with dignity. You know, I didn't, nobody really said to me, like, um, you know, of course I was asked what, what my access needs were, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, people just respected that. They were like, you know, they would tell me what food was on my plate. And, and did you know this? This, so this is just a little cheat that I will tell you about because I actually had the privilege of being able to pl- fly business class. So part of me wonders if this is a difference between business class and economy, but business class, um, and, and on this Air Canada plane has audio described movies Ooh. and has an audio described TV screen. You get your own individual TV screen and it's got, it's, 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 and it's not voiceover, but it's touch activated. Um, so it's, it's got voiceover on it. Uh, so why can't they do this with, with the rest of the plane? Or why are they not offering us like discounted seats in the accessible seats? Mm. Is all I'm saying. Uh, yeah. So like clearly <laughs> that's a, Phenomenal to hear, you know, such a positive experience yeah. from Air Canada, especially in the wake of all these these negative um, uh, kind of experiences that we, we've read mm-hmm. about, we've, we've heard about through the different airlines. Do you think that be, this positive experience is kind of going above and beyond is tied to the fact that you were in business class opposed to economy? You mentioned with some of like the, the TV screens and things like that, like, is it because of the business class? Maybe it's because of new protocols. Maybe it's because of a new plane. Like, what do you attribute it to? Well, certainly the technology part um, is because of the business class. That's not something that you find in in economy. Um, But that is kind of disheartening because if they can do it in business class, they can do it everywhere, right? Um, So that's that's a disheartening thing around the access piece. Um, But the staff in business class, you know, it's kind of like in a hospital, right? You know, you've you've got, you know, extra staff per per person than you do in economy where you've got, you know, I don't know, 200 people and you've got two staff and in business class you've got, you know, 40 people and you've got six staff, right? Mm -hmm. So there's more staff to go around. And so, you know, they check in with you more frequently and it's a little bit more of a different experience. I would hope that the access piece, though, would be the same in that, you know, people would, you know, say your name before you, uh, before they address you, you know, because, you know, that happens in economy, too, when they, mm-hmm. they come to you and they, when they're sitting in your seat and they say, oh, you, you know, you're on my, my tablet as having a, a low vision, you know, is there anything that I can do to help you? And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't, even though I'm on the manifest, right? So, um, but it always happens if you're in, in business class, right? So that's the difference is like, you know, they forget about you sometimes in economy. Do they do that because they just have too many passengers to take care of? Mm-hmm. Um, it shouldn't ha- It shouldn't happen. Um, and so this is why I think that maybe they should just tell those of us with disabilities that we get a discount. We should all fly business class. 
Hey, I, I, I'm um, never going to say no to that, Amy. I'm never going to say exactly, no. I've, I've had exactly. the privilege to be a couple times in business class through my years. And yeah, I, I would fully appreciate and embrace that idea. Um, let's, let's, let's move on from, from air travel for now. You also wanted to highlight a couple of great events that are taking place. So uh, one of them is uh, dealing with the Children's Low Vision Project of BC. So first off, what is the goal of the Children's Low Vision Project of BC? You know, this is uh, uh, something that is new to me. I didn't actually know a lot about this organization, but, um, you know, one of the things my mom and I used to talk about a lot was, um, you know, when she was in school, she, she used to say to me, um, thank heavens that they tested our eyes and tested our ears in school because her parents didn't really believe in doctors very much. And she says, it's, thank goodness that that happened because I don't know that, you know, I would have got any other, you know, wouldn't have, wouldn't have been tested any other way. And it got me thinking about this. And so and this uh, project does exactly that with vision. So they go around uh, into different parts of the province and uh, have these clinics set up so that you can bring your school-aged kids in and um, have their eyes tested and whatever. And then they have these little clinics so that, you know, if your, your kid has low vision, and we're not talking about legal blindness necessarily, but if they have low vision, that they can check out, you know, learning aids and those kinds of things and um, so it, it's a, a really great way of being able to catch um, folk, uh, children that have um, eye diseases or low vision that may not be caught um, because they, they, ha they don't have, like, legal blindness. You know, that, that there's that gray area, right, mm -hmm. where, you're, you know, you may not take your kid to an optometrist um, uh, early enough in life, just as you may not take your, dent your kid to a dentist or whatever, and you don't catch these problems right away. And so for a kid, it's, it's air quotes, their norm. So that's what this organization does. It helps to, to it's a stopgap between um, uh, that. And if you are um, a parent that maybe doesn't yeah, believe in medical so much, you know, this organization, is, it steps in to help make sure that kids get this kind of um, medical intervention. Um, and they, they go around the province. So they're going to be in Chilliwack for a large chunk of time coming up. And uh, I, I just think that this is a great, a great way of being able to um, step in and support kids in, in uh in the, in the school age um, category because we need this kind of support, right? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of like the, the specific like programs and, and services and support that they do offer, like what what is they offering when they are in uh, these uh, different settings? Yeah, they, they offer these clinic settings. So you can come in and have your eyes tested, um, you know, kind of like being in, a, an, op, in, in an optometrist setting and then they also offer kind of like a library they call it a learning library setting where you can um, look at low vision aids magnifying glasses uh, monoculars those kinds of things uh, once you have sort of an air quotes diagnosis to see if those things could help you in a school setting they will loan equipment to you um, they will give you equipment and if that equipment gets damaged they'll replace that equipment so you know they have kind of a setup to be able to um, get kids the equipment that they need at a young age so that they are not um, they're not missing out on stuff in school because that's again if you're falling behind in school because of low vision and you don't necessarily know that you have low vision because it's air quotes your norm right um, then you know you're, you're missing an opportunity for for kids and, and they can easily fall behind in their learning so it's, it's aiming to help um, help fill that gap there 
Absolutely. And, and for folks at home, if they want to kind of connect with the organization, you can uh, find out more information by reaching out to Lynn Langill. And that, uh, her email address is L-L-A-N-G-I-L-L-E at prcvi.org. Or you can visit the website cvlp-bc.com. And lastly, Amy, you also wanted to highlight some of the, the arts events happening in your neck of the woods. You, you are a big fan of the arts community and a proud supporter of the arts community. So just uh, tell me a bit about what's happening with the Surrey Arts Centre and their, uh, their gallery exhibit called Hair. The Surrey Arts Centre is doing a full day of, uh, of art for art lovers. Um, Surrey's about, um, I don't know, a good half hour, 45 minutes, maybe outside of the Vancouver area. And um, uh, so this art exhibit called Hair is at the Surrey Arts Centre. And it is, um, it's an exhibition about the history of hair, uh, which I was like, what? well, how is that interesting? But then I went on this, this tour and um, hair is so culturally relevant to so many people on the planet um, I'm a white person, and so hair may be not so culturally um, related to my uh, ethnic background, but there are all sorts of folks in the um, BIPOC community that hair is really culturally significant um, and tells stories and um, has a lot more meaning than what we think it does. Um, for example, uh, there was stories being told about what it means to be African-American uh, female and um, to have shaved your head and all the significance of what that actually means. And I was like blown away by all of the, um, the significance of what that means in, in their culture, which I had no idea there, there was a significance and a stigma and a relationship, uh, kind of like a, um, a code for what that means in their culture. And I, I had no idea. So, um, so there's a lot of interesting learning there. Uh, there's one piece though that really struck me, which was an indigenous artist who was lying in a field of, of long grass um, with a, another Indigenous woman, and she had long black hair, and her hair was being braided into the grass of the ground. So she's just lying there, just a video that plays over and over, a silent video with the, with the wind going, and her hair is being braided into the, into the long grass. So she, essentially, she, her hair is being braided into the earth. Um, and it's really, really, you know, as it's being described to me, really overwhelming. So this, this exhibit is really interesting and overwhelming. They're working hard to just make it descriptive. Um, and then we're going to have a little social event, and then it's followed by a described show, which is a great um, comedy experience. So it's a full day of art. That's awesome. And you can find out uh, more information by going to Surrey Civic Theatres at surrey.ca, Surrey Civic Theatres at surrey.ca, or giving them a call at 604-501-5566. And Amy, I, I have to just make one correction. I had misspoken about the website for the Children's Flow uh, uh, Vision uh, Support Group. So it is clvp-bc.com. I, I had my mistake, clvp-bc.com. Amy, thank you so much for bringing these topics forward. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate that. That is Amy Amanti, community reporter based in BC. And coming up in one minute, we'll have the entertainment report with Laura Bain. But first, people are spending a lot of money on dating apps. Here's reporter Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. 
From ABC News Tech Trends, $206 million. That's how much money Americans spent on dating apps last month. That's a new record, according to Randy Nelson from Data AI. Subscription offerings that you might pay for on a monthly or yearly basis. Uh, but at the same time, they'll have, you know, depending on the app, a certain number of one-off transactions. Globally, that figure is around half a billion dollars. And Nelson says it comes as dating apps expand beyond the world of romance. Maps like Bumble now offer services to match with potential friends or business partners. It's a very standout example of how some of these apps are going about solving that problem of built-in obsolescence. When it comes to which dating apps people spend the most money on, Tinder is number one, followed by Bumble, Hinge, and Grindr. The big three or four that we're used to talking about are kind of perpetually in that position. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Mike, let's welcome in Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Laura, you had a couple of stories that kind of made your kind of morning kind of scrolling. You peaked out your interest. So what is making headlines in the world of entertainment today? Well, uh, it kind of related stories, I guess, in a way, but uh, the end of an era for a Canadian music legend, Sam the Record Man. Now, some folks like myself might be surprised to learn that Sam the Record Man was still going in any form at all because most stores closed in the early 2000s, with the last corporately owned store closing in 2007. That was here in Halifax, and I remember it well when it closed. Uh, But there is actually one remaining last Sam the Record Man independently owned in Belleville, Ontario. And the owners have recently announced that after 45 years of running the store, it's time for them to retire. Uh, And right now the fate of that store is up in the air because there's no plans for anyone to take it over. But that store is apparently still successful. They're not closing it because it's not successful. So maybe it's an opportunity for someone looking to get into the record store business. And this sort of got me, you know, thinking back to when these stores were in their heyday, not just Sam the Record Man, but kind of music stores in general, physical music stores and you know, Halifax must have had at least half a dozen record stores just in the relatively small downtown area. And I feel like they added such a cool vibe. You know, for me, visiting them was really an activity that I would do a couple times a week after high school. I'd head downtown and, you know, maybe spend an hour or two flipping through the music or, um, you know, you could meet friends there and chat with people about music. A lot of them had like listening stations or you could even at some of them listen to an album before you you bought it so you might be hanging out there for a while and I feel like when they disappeared there was really nothing sort of culturally comparable that took their place unfortunately so you know I I really miss the I really miss the record store but what about you Alex were you a frequent a frequenter of these stores and do you uh, miss when they were around everywhere so absolutely, I, I used to go all the time and enjoy the record stores, peruse the, the, the aisles, flip through the CDs, and in, at some points, you know, flipping through the LPs and the albums. I, I still do collect LP and albums, and I, I will say I'm a bit fortunate because there is a used record store 
just a, right uh, maybe a few blocks from from my house and so I still go there quite often and even they have like transformed over the years like I love those listening stations you mentioned like they were literally just planted on the wall you had some headphones you could either put in a selection of CDs or they had a preloaded like set of five or six that were kind of the new releases the new um, uh, albums that were coming out that you could listen to you could test it out you could see if you actually liked it and wanted to pick it up. There was some sort of like something missing, as you mentioned, like a bit of that culture, that that communal like meeting space, the music lovers could like just chat and like be in kind of a hub. You could flip through, look at album covers, things like that. You could just take your time. You didn't feel like I need to buy what I need and get out. But that unfortunately has gone away. I'm surprised that uh, mm-hmm. Sam the Record Store lasted as long as it did, even independently. But yeah, I'm not surprised that there's still that appetite for it. What about you, Laura? Yeah, you know, and it was definitely, definitely more of a social experience. Mm-hmm. And, and there is uh, some great used record stores in Halifax, I will say, like yeah. uh, some stores where you can pick up some vinyl. But, you know, one band that you certainly would have found at Sam the Record Man back in the day is Pearl Jam and Sam the Record Man may be done, but Pearl Jam carries on. This is my other story tomorrow, or today rather, that they've just announced a new album called Dark Matter, and that is coming out on April 19th, and they've also announced a world tour, which will kick off in Vancouver on May 4th and 6th. Those are the only Canadian dates that they've announced thus far, and they've released the title track from this album, and I've brought that for us to listen to, so let's give that song a listen. Okay, okay, okay. You know, you yeah. get the classic Eddie Vedder uh, vocals. You get, you know, the the guitar riffs in there. I will say, is it my favorite Pearl Jam track? No. Um, it, it's definitely a, along with the style, along with the the tone of what you would think of when it comes to Pearl Jam, but. Not my favorite. Uh, Laura, quick reactions from you. Yeah, I'm not blown away by it either. And there's something about the mix where I find Eddie Vedder has really, his vocals are sort of fading into the background for me. And there's no real like hook in this song that grabs me. I did listen to it a few times, but you know, he has said that he thinks this album is actually their best uh, work ever. So remains to be seen. It remains to be seen. I guess I'll I'll hold judgment until I can listen to the whole thing on April 19th. Well, that may be a marketing ploy because I don't think any artist is going to say, oh, this new album that I'm currently promoting and touring this isn't my best work by uh by a long slot no they they need to sell the album i think it's not surprising to say that it's his uh, their best work or the band's best work to get interest and and get people listen but laura thank you so much have yourself a wonderful day thanks alex you too <laughs> that was laura bain with the entertainment report coming up after the break brock richardson stops by for a sports chat you're watching now with dave brown on ami tv
Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming an audio on AMI-plus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. It is Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. Coming up on the second hour of the show, the Roundtable on Black History Month is hosting a series of programming in Montreal. Fimo Mitchell shares some highlights and... British Columbia has become the first jurisdiction to sign the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People into law. Arno Kopecki explores some of the steps the province is taking to protect both biodiversity and the rights of Indigenous people. All that and more to come. But first, we will start with a sports chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, the big news in Toronto is the fact that the Leafs are going to be down a defenseman for the next five games. They are. Uh, Morgan Riley got suspended five games, as you mentioned, for a cross-check against Ottawa Senators player Ridley Gregg. Now, uh, let me give you a bit of context. So, uh, the Ottawa Senators were winning uh, by multiple goals. I can't exactly remember how many goals it was, but it was multiple goals. And there was an empty net. And Ridley Gray was skating down, and he slap shot the puck into the net instead of just kind of casually putting it in, as most most athletes do under that circumstance. Morgan Riley took exception to that and gave him a cross check, and this is that. What I'll tell you, Alex, is I'll say that as soon as we heard that it was an in-person hearing, as we did a couple of days ago, uh, which meant that he met with the league in person, we pretty well knew that this was going to be at least five games. Um, the argument from Morgan Riley and his camp is, look, Greg shouldn't have done that either. It's disrespectful to, you know, slap the puck into an empty net when you're already leading. I will tell you, I agree with that. But I will also say it's usually the retaliation that gets more of the more of the uh, penalty, if you will. And I think that's part of this. I A lot of people will say, oh, yeah, but Morgan Riley didn't have an offense, didn't do this. Maybe it should be three games. I can see that argument, but I think when you look at the standard of five games being given when it's in person, that's why we are where we are. What do you think? I completely disagree with you, Brock, that the slap shot is uh, an offense, like an offensive play that uh, should not be done. If he had taken a slap shot from the blue line, from uh, the red line, it, no one would be talking about it because you still need to get the puck in. The game was going on. The net was empty. Toronto pulled the net. He didn't slap shot at anyone. He put it into the net. There is nothing in the rules. There is no issues around the type of shot you take. It would be far different if he decides to go through the legs. He does a spinorama. He makes a big display. He just took a slap shot. Like, I, I think this is such a overblown idea that, wow, he is uh, he is causing controversy because he slapped the puck in the... He shot the puck in the net, and then Morgan Riley comes out of nowhere just to cross-check him in the head for no legitimate reason. I wouldn't have been surprised if Morgan Riley got 10 games. I think the only reason he didn't is because he hasn't done things like this in the past. So that's where I stand. I, I think that, you know, this may be part of the... You know, the favoritism being in the Toronto media. Oh, well, you know, he didn't do too much. He had no reason to, to go after him. The, the play was over. The, the situation had ended. He was skating off to go and celebrate the goal with his teammates, and Morgan Riley comes out of nowhere unprompted and cross-checks him in the head. I, I think there, there needs to be 
a higher standard here of trying to compare. Okay, these two are equally guilty in this situation. Let, let me be. Let me be very clear. I think that Morgan Riley should have been suspended 100. Mm-hmm. percent I, I, I absolutely think that that should be. You're right. There is no offense to doing what he did. He put the puck in the net, which is the 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 name of the game. The argument that is is like. You could have done it in a different way, but the way you the way you just described it, he could have done it in a lot of a different way, where he could have been making a spectacle. So, I actually think for the cross check alone, taking away the incident, which of course wouldn't allowed for the cross check to be, I I think that Morgan Riley probably should have gotten more games. I think if it were me, I would have been the player discipline and been like, there was no reason for that whatsoever. Um, you know, you can make the argument that Ridley Gray didn't need to do that, but you certainly did not need to retaliate in such a way that you did. If it were me, I would have given him probably seven or eight games, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, but the five tends to be the standard of when it's an in-person hearing, it tends to be you're going to get at least five, and I'm kind of surprised that it stayed at five, to be perfectly honest. Well, and, and the other point I, I will uh, kind of make in this situation, how many times have we seen uh, players skate up thinking that, oh, we got a clear thing, uh, the net is empty, there's no one around me, I can go in, I can get this goal, and then they miss. They miss on the empty net. Like, this would be a far different situation. Like, what if he missed? Like, you know, there's an opportunity. You almost want, as a, uh, as a fan for the opposing team to try to take a slap shot because those are typically less accurate than a wrister. So it works more in your favor if you're a Toronto fan that, oh, he's taking a slap shot instead of a wrist shot because he could have missed it. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think that, that's another argument too, is that like the, the, you know, like you pointed out here a couple of times, the point of the game is to put the puck in the net. <laughs> the result would have never changed Ah, had Morgan Riley not done that or done it, it, it would have been what it would have been. They won by multiple goals. It was over. I think Morgan Riley needs to learn from this ex- example. And before we let go here and, and leave the topic, I would say if I'm the coaching staff of the Toronto Maple Leafs, this is a real, real issue that you decided to do this at this time of the year. Toronto is not guaranteed anything they're not guaranteed to get into the playoffs, as is anybody. And I think you make this decision. Look at how many people yesterday's in yesterday's game were out sick or whatever. And that's things that they can't control. And Mar- Morgan Riley decided to control something and make a cross-check. I am in no way a proponent of this cross-check. I just think that uh, he might have got off a little bit, a little bit lucky, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, there was a, a famous line in sports, your best ability is your availability. Well, now Morgan Riley is going to be unavailable for five games. Brock, thank you so, uh, so much. Have yourself a wonderful day. You as well. Okay, that was Brock Richardson at the sports desk coming up after the break. British Columbia has become the first jurisdiction to sign the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People into law. Arno Kopecki explores some of the steps the province is taking to protect both biodiversity and the rights of Indigenous people. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on the AMI-tv.
Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave. British Columbia is making waves to protect its biodiversity and the rights of Indigenous people. They are the first jurisdiction to sign the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People into law. Originally signed in 2019, the impacts of that law are being felt today. Arno Kopecki is here to explain how, and Arno is a journalist based in BC. Hello, Arno. How are you doing today? Hello. Good morning, Alex. I'm good. Thanks. Great. So, okay, this law was signed in 2019. Why are you focused on it today? Yeah, you know, it's because some of its impacts are only just now starting to be felt. And uh, it's a wide-ranging law. I'm really interested in its impact on environment and, and, and biodiversity protection. And a couple months ago, BC's really re released a slew of huge announcements around protecting uh, ecosystems in this province. This is the most biodiverse province in the country, one of the most biodiverse regions in the world, twice the size of France. And BC is now getting pretty radical. They've, they've put a billion dollars on the table in conservation financing and creating national or provincial parks, uh, indigenous-led parks, and a whole bunch of stuff that is really looking to prioritize uh, ecosystem protection and health over industrial profits, which is a total 180 from how things have been run in the last 150 years or so in this province. And what's really fascinating is that indigenous led conservation is really at the heart of this and involving over 200 nations in this province. Um, it's a huge endeavor, super complex, and it's it's really just starting to kick in now. Uh, so that that's sort of why I've why I've really started to take note and, and, and look into it. Well, and, and expand on that a bit more, because like just naturally, yeah. it would sound like these are two kind of very separate things. But you say that they're very much intertwined. So what is kind of outlined in the U.N. Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People? Sure. Yeah, it's a huge document. Uh, you know, at the heart of it is just, I think, a, a fairly simple but profound notion that Indigenous peoples have human rights like the rest of us. Uh, these rights have been trampled upon, not just in Canada, but much of the world. Um, and now we're, we're coming around. But... Uh, as I said, in BC and in much of Canada, you know, and Indigenous communities are the ones who live out on the land, and their rights have been, and part of the trampling of their rights has been the extraction of resources from their territories, uh, causing great uh, environmental damage, you know, clear cuts that then, dis, you know, there's landslides that then ruin salmon streams. It, it's, it's an endless list. Um, so involving them in the decision-making of what resources get extracted is is a pretty big change. You know, if you look at pipelines and hydroelectric dams and mines, these things traditionally in BC and, and all of Canada have just gone ahead uh, according to the whims of, of government and industry without any consultation. So uh, the, the, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples affirms that not only do the indigenous communities who live out there uh, have to provide consent, but they actually have to be part of the decision-making process. So they get to say what goes where, they get a share in the profits, they get some self-determination here, they get to they form their own governments. It's essentially uh, one, one, one person that I talked to about this described it as the creation of a governance superstructure in this province. So we already have a provincial government. Um, we are now also watching the creation of a, of, a, of a second layer of government, which is the collection of Indigenous nations in this, in this province. And these two separate 
forms of government are now fusing into one sort of huge umbrella of governance that will jointly oversee how resources are extracted in this province and where. And they will jointly oversee uh, new parks that allow some uh, industry to proceed, but on very different specific terms than before. Um, it's really... It's an immense change, and and nobody in Canada or the world is is really quite doing this. So it's it's uh, it's 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 quite dramatic. It's very complex and and rather wonky. So it doesn't lend itself well to headlines or descriptive, uh, you know, narrative uh, swashbuckling stories. But it it really is in its impact. It's it's a dramatic state of affairs, and it really turns the way things have been done upside down. Well, that's why I always like bringing you on, Arno, because you can help unpack these stories that may not be front of mind for people that are, but are still having a a very clear impact on you know the environment, on industry, on the province as a whole. As you mentioned, this is something completely new; it's never been done before. How has the process been so far? Well, it's been complex and slower than anybody wants it to be. I think one of the flashpoints in this province, is, as your audience may be aware, is is the protection of old growth forest in this province. That's that's called, you know there's been huge protests around that, um, and that's you know that's one of the big changes that's been happening now. Is BC is saying, okay, we're putting a moratorium, no more logging of old growth, but we have to involve First Nations in this. So paradoxically, even if a First Nation doesn't want old growth to be logged on its territory, which is generally the case they also don't want the province just to come in and say okay we're going to stop this thing they don't want the province to come in and tell them anything unilaterally they want to be involved in these decisions so that has meant because there are so many nations and it's so complex it has taken longer than anybody wants it to take to stop logging old growth now we're finally reaching that point that's just one example there's also you know commercial fishing there's mining uh there's these pipelines that are being built and oil and gas being extracted so in each of those cases but now we are slowly actually starting to see this thing take some teeth and so old growth is being logged less um, and, you know, with this billion dollars that's now on the table for conservation financing and the creation of parks, you're seeing industry actually realize like, whoa, we're not running the show anymore the way we used to. We have to do there's all these, you know, what they see as hurdles to their profits in place. And so it has created a situation now The you know, in B.C., uh, it's an NDP provincial government here, which is which is leading this charge. And I, I give them really big props for doing that um, when the. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act was signed into law in 2019 in this province. It was passed unanimously in the legislature. Conservatives, NDP, everybody signed on to it. Now that the reality of what that actually means is, is starting to kick in, conservative opposition has is now saying, whoa, 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 we're, if elect us back into our power and we will revoke, you know, we will repeal this act. It's much too, you know, th these, you know, we can't let these indigenous groups interfere with, with the growth of this province. And and a lot of, you know, fairly uh, racist, you know, thinly veiled racist uh, uh, reasons for them to, to renege on, on what they had promised. So uh, that's how that's kind of how I see it is, is you know, all of a sudden we're having to, to give back some of the authority that we that we un unlawfully took over over this land. And people, when they see what that actually looks like in practice, they, they're starting to backpedal some people. And in terms of uh, resource extraction now and, and that bringing in the First Nation uh, to yeah. to be a part of those decision-making processes, this doesn't necessarily mean that this is the end of natural resource extraction in BC. It's just it's taking a different approach. There's a, a lot more consultations, say, and um, power to those who are living in those communities and on those lands.
Exactly. Yeah. There's, you know, there's this, the myth kind of goes two ways, you know, the, the, the noble savage, you know, first nations don't want any industry at all to take place. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Many first nations groups are very pro industry. Um, they have been mired in poverty for ages uh, and they want to make some money like we did, like everybody else has. Um, but they also live on the land. So they see firsthand and feel and live with the results of the way industry has been done here for the last 150 years, which is really just total pillage and plunder. And we're seeing the effects. There, are, There is almost no old growth left in this province, you know, uh, 5 or 10% of what there used to be. Salmon populations, wild salmon populations are crashing. Um, you see destruction on the landscape. That is, it's not just that this pretty landscape is not as pretty as it used to be, but, you know, uh, the impacts are, are huge in terms of... The, uh, there's also just not as much money to be made anymore because a lot of because of the way that industry has proceeded. So uh, if you step back and look at the long picture and, and don't just think of, well, how much can we boost our quarterly profits? But if you think, how's this going to look for our children and our grandchildren and how can we sustain a way of life uh, for generations and generations to come? Um, that is kind of the the way that the, the perspective that I think First Nations help bring to the table here, which is really good for all of us. It's not just this altruistic act of, oh, let's atone for past sins. Uh, that's part of it. But it's also a way of like, let's all live together here because none of us are going away. And so that doesn't mean an end to industry, but it does mean uh, a change in the way that industry has proceeded for, for really valid reasons that I think the whole world has to start grappling with. And so that's why I see this as a really exciting, cool story. Like the, the BC is really offering uh, a way forward for, for a lot of people to, to take hope from. And what can other jurisdictions learn from BC's uh, uh, kind of direction and, and how they've led the charge in this area? Sure. You know, BC is unique in the sense that we never signed treaties with the First Nations here. It's the only province in Canada that really just basically took the land uh, without any legal uh, justification. They didn't sign any treaties as they did in the rest of Canada. And so... The law courts, uh, you know, First Nations have been fighting these battles in court for decades now and winning consistently, which is why a big part of the reason why British Columbia is doing this, I should say. It. Um, this did not necessarily just come from the goodness of, of premiers' hearts. Uh, it came because they were losing in court and industry could not proceed anyway. Um, so they people have said, OK, well, let's, I guess we got to work together here. Let's figure this out. Um, so I think in the rest of Canada, where treaties have applied, the thing is that most of those treaties have been broken or not delivered in good faith. You know, a lot of those treaties included a provision that the First Nation community should be allowed to hunt and draw water in perpetuity. And when there's no more uh, wild animals left, which is in fact the case in a lot of parts of Canada, um, that's one of the ways in which these treaties have been broken. I want to emphasize, you know, I'm an environmental journalist, so I'm really uh, focusing on the environmental and ecosystem implications of this, but it spreads to education, it spreads to self-governance, uh, uh, it spreads to all kinds of, of aspects of, of just human rights. Um, and so in the rest of Canada, I think, you know, you could adopt this act and it would force provinces and, and other regions and, and territories in Canada to really re-examine uh, the treaties that were signed and how those are being actually implemented and broken and, and you know, a rewriting of the Indian Act, actually eliminating the Indian Act, I should say. Um, so that that's, I think, how, how I see uh, BC sort of setting a bit of a template that, that other regions and provinces could follow. Arno, thank you so much for bringing this story forward. It's a really important one. I'm, I'm so happy we could chat about it. Have yourself a wonderful day. 
Awesome. Hey, thanks, Alex. Great to chat with you. You as well. That was Arno Kopecki, a journalist based in British Columbia. Coming up after the break, the Roundtable on Black History Month is hosting a series of programming in Montreal. Bimo Mitchell shares the highlights. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI, I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Montreal is commemorating the 33rd anniversary of Black History Month this year. During the month of February, special programming will be put on by the Roundtable on Black History Month. The nonprofit organization promotes activities highlighting both the history and contemporary situation of Black communities in Quebec. Fimo Mitchell is a spokesperson for the organization and has all the details. Fimo is also one of the 12 laureates being celebrated in this year's program. Hello, Fimo. How are you doing today? I am well. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for making time for us. So uh, as part of this year's programming in Montreal, the theme is Many Stories, One History. What narratives and perspective are being highlighted? I think the fact, uh, the biggest narrative is that we as a community um, there's many, perhaps, communities within the black community. So we're not a monolith. We have many different languages. Um, you know, we, when I think black community, I think the diaspora, right? So um, you have black people such as myself born, raised here on Turtle Island um, or the U.S. Then you have black people coming from the Caribbean, South America, Europe. And of course, you have continental Africans. Um, so you, you have all of those different cultures, um, and there's black people that are born in Asia as well. So um, all that to say, lots of different cultures, lots of different ways of being, um, and so many stories, but one history, and I believe that history, um, at the root of it, is Africa. And I think Black History Month is a beautiful time to remember that, to celebrate that, and to ask questions, and to um, contemplate where we're at today and where do we want to go? Where do we want to project ourselves? Um, you know, generations from now, where do we see ourselves? Absolutely. Um, well, and, and, and as part of uh, this month and, and the programming, like it's just, there's a wide array of, of programming and uh, things taking place. Like for instance, you know, there, there was a, a blood drive that took place last weekend. There's exhibits, there's workshops. Like what goes into the process of curating the event list, the activities that are gonna be taking place? Okay, well, I don't, I, I, I'm not uh, in charge of curating the activities, mm -hmm. but I know that there is a very, um, there's a board mm -hmm. and I know they do a really good job of um, ensuring that the month, uh, the events that, the, the roundtable promotes or as you mentioned there's a variety of events and then like something like a blood drive um is very important to the community and so that gets a lot of promotion and then like something like next week there's a, a film screen of black ice by uh, hubert davis which is an important film um you know you're you're going to see different there's theater there's work as you mentioned there's workshops um i think it's, it goes back to the uh, many stories, and I think it goes back to just the diversity within the black community, and that's what's 
on full display during the month, which is why you have so many different um, events, different types of events, which mm -hmm. I think is great. I think it's beautiful. And like, how do these, the, the variety really help to educate and provide awareness about the experience in the community and, and celebrating this month? I think it, um, it does, by placing a spotlight on the fact that there's going to be films, there's going to be workshops, there's going to be a blood drive, there's going to be um, discussions. Like on, on February 24th, there's Conversation Noire, which is just basically conversations. Um, I think this year the theme is Carnival, I believe. Like these are, it's cultural, it's historical. Um, by doing this and by putting this on a platform, in my opinion, you, um, you celebrate the, the richness of the community. And um, for those that are part of the community, it's a time for us to be like, okay, wow, this is great, and to learn. And for those outside of the community, it's a time to also um, learn and ask questions and and do some research as well. I mean, we live in a time of uh, Google or whatever search engine one chooses to use. Um, you can do a lot of research and, and look at the history of um, blacks in Canada, for example. You know, sometimes when we, think about black history, we automatically think about black Americans, you know, which is fine, but we have a lot of black Canadian history as well that needs to be learned, that needs to be shared, that needs to be talked about in schools. Um, we're not there yet. Hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll get there. As I, I mentioned off the top, you are one of the 12 laureates being celebrated, and it's part of the, uh, the work you have done with when the village meditates, what impact has your organization made in Montreal and within the community? Well, I think, I, I hope, I hope <laughs> impact is um, coming together, being in community, uh, community as a mental health solution um, where we can heal and thrive together. Um, black people, other racialized people and, and and those that aren't racialized are marginalized, are marginalized. A space, creating spaces where healing and thriving is possible and where community um, is celebrated. And community is often used now by, um, it's been co-opted by like <laughs> companies and corporations mm -hmm. to try to sell merchandise a lot of times. But, but I think it's important to really reiterate community as, as this sense of, um, people that feel that they belong together and actually care for each other, like a genuine care for each other. Um, you know, we live in an era of such loneliness and there's so much talk about mental health crisis. Well, I think community is a great, great solution to this. And so um, hopefully the impact is we've been able to create community and people feel heard, they feel seen, they feel valued um, when they're within the village. And one thing, too, that um, is always important to me, it's like it's the celebration of black history and black culture, it, it extends beyond just February. This, this yes. is, the work is done all year round. Uh, the emphasis should be all year round. Like, in terms of the roundtable itself, like, what is some of the, the work and impact that they are doing to make sure that the community is feeling the support, the awareness, and, and building those deeper connections all year round? I'm glad you said that, Alex. I think it's so important to realize that um, Black history is not just February, and that Black history is is uh, Canadian history. You know, it's not like it's separate thing. Also, um, and in terms of what the roundtable is doing year round, um, I know that 
as a mission, their mission is really to put a spotlight on the history and on events that are happening within the community. Um, but in terms of what they do on a daily basis to promote that annually, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I, I can't really speak to that. I'm not quite sure. Um, but I know that's the mission. And um, whatever I can do to make that happen, I will definitely do so. Fimo, thank you so much for your time and have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. That was Fimo Mitchell. Uh, Fimo is a spokesperson for the Roundtable on Black History Month and programming runs all month long. And for more information, you can search the Roundtable on Black History Month. Coming up after the break, we assemble the Roundtable and talk all about education and the return of standardized testing in high school. Elizabeth Moeller will bring that story forward. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming in audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Ramya Muthan is not here today, but that doesn't mean you won't find out what's coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Ramya, which airs 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Grant Hardy is going to be the guest host and community reporter Stephen Ritchie explores the intersectionality of blackness and disability justice in Toronto. In a health chat with Leslie DePoe, they talk about the effects of alcohol and the buzz around Usher's halftime show at the Super Bowl continues. Corinne Van Dusen considers where it stands up in the past performances, and you can catch all that and more by tuning in to Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. But now let's welcome in Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you want to chat all about education. Not a huge surprise coming from you, but this uh, <laughs> this story caught your attention. Yeah, it did. So over in Manitoba, the education minister has announced the returning of end of year and standardized exams for grade 12 students, as well as the grade 10 test. Um, the grade 10 test and grade 12 tests are largely aimed at math and language, and they were suspended um, for a lot of the country actually during COVID because people didn't have the same access. But now Manitoba is phasing those exams and standardized tests back in and not without some controversies from people, uh, parents and other groups, lobby groups who feel that it's unfair. So I wanted to stir the pot a little bit and ask our round table today to think about uh, exams. Starting with you, Nisreen, do you feel that there, the provinces should do away with standardized tests and end of year exams? Where are you on this sort of issue? I agree with the fact that, you know, maybe they should get back to it, but with some improvements. I mean, you have to remember, I've always been against, you know, the final exams. Everybody has the same exam. Um, and, you know, being a student for how many years, I, I've always just been uh, against that fact because, 
students have a different way of learning. They, everybody, everybody mm -hmm. learns it different. Everybody is taught differently and absorbs information differently. And I always felt that it was unfair. Uh, everybody has a different mm -hmm. learning curve and it shouldn't all, not everybody should have the same test or at least like for me personally, I feel overly stressed when it comes to exams as one should be but mm -hmm. i get so nervous that i blink every inf every information mm -hmm. that i absorbed over the yes. years <laughs> from how many years that i've like learned a specific uh subject when it comes to the exam blink absolutely blink that's just not the way i um i i, I it's not fair for me to show how much I absorbed for with an exam. Well, and, and that's mm -hmm. it, right? Because it's not necessarily testing your understanding on a subject. It's all about testing your, your memory on a specific exactly. situation or a specific data point. I think there's, and, and I agree with you, Nisreen, I, I think there is value in having some form of testing. And the, the problem is if you just eliminate it from high school, well, you're still going to face it if you go to university or other post-secondary yeah. um, like levels of education that you're still going to be tested in some way, shape, or form. I, I think there is a value in having that because it's it's a form of preparation for the next level. But that mm -hmm. said, I think you, there's certainly kind of reworking that can, can happen. It can be a bit more evidence-based or a bit more situational-based knowledge that you would have to demonstrate in one way, shape, or form instead of what is the date that, uh, you know, such and such took place or find uh, what does X equal? Unless you're in a very specific, you know, like stream like mathematics where that is essentially, you know, how you're going to prove your understanding. I think there are better methods mm. in uh, determining um, kind of what what kind of retention you have in terms of knowledge and understanding on the subject. Elizabeth? You're you're one very much within the education field. How do you feel about the return of standardized testing for high school? Yeah, I think it's it's in the nuance of what the test is. So I know when I was in high school, exams were very heavily weighted in terms of your grade. It might be 40% or 50%, and certainly that carried through into undergrad as well. Um, so I think a little bit of distribution around the weighting of the exam. So I don't think that we should get rid of exams or tests, but I think that the weighting, they, they shouldn't weigh as much. There should be more assignments throughout the year, culminating activities. But I think about some of my best exams, and I think about what those uh, entailed and looked like. And one was a grade 10 science exam. It was open book, which everybody thought was easy. But I was like, no, no, no. If it's open book, they're not going to be the standard, you know, what element is helium? And it was applying things from our course learning to real world experiences. So whether that was doing some kind of paper um, for the exam or whether that was answering some kind of questions around uh, a news story and then applying what we learned in science to that news story. Um, the exam really kind of got us to be creative and just even the way the exam was structured. So uh, we had groups, we did it in smaller groups. So it wasn't people in a big room. The, the um, instructor for the course made coffee. So you could up at any time and have a cup of coffee and just stretch your legs. It was just a very relaxed and welcoming environment. And it really kind of played on the critical thinking piece. The other a really positive exam story I have, and I know it sounds strange to say positive exam story, but <laughs> it was actually during my 
PhD and it was our qualifying exam. So in order to start your research, because you haven't apparently proven enough by just getting into the PhD, in our program, you do a qualifying exam. And it was a topic of my choice that had been approved by a committee and I had five months to do a critical reflective paper on that. So I could read and immerse myself and think and I had a good chunk of time and I could check in and ask questions along the way, obviously not questions that would um, mean I wasn't doing the work, but sort of those clarifying questions or running ideas by my committee. And it was a really enjoyable experience because with guidance, I got to pick the topic. So I was passionate and excited about it. I felt like I was really able to reflect on it. So I think that was another really positive experience. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't know about doing away with, because even outside of post-secondary, people take driving tests. Um, a lot of jobs require you to take a, a proficiency test in maybe a language. You or, can't escape um, it. Yeah. yeah, you can't escape it. Exactly. So I think for me, it's about finding the nuance and the balance and doing it in a way that's um, really bringing the, the learner's experience to the fore and what they're passionate and interested about. And Nisreen, Elizabeth kind of uh, shared some of her exam memories. What exam memories do you have, whether they're positive, like Elizabeth, or more likely a negative or just like traumatizing to a certain extent? Um, I could tell you that there's just, there's been a couple of exams where they ended up canceling the whole exam and just substituting it with an assignment, mm. which oh. was a great opportunity for me to show how much I've learned throughout mm -hmm. the year or uh, this uh, subject. Um, I agree with both of you. I, I agree that you can't escape it. You have to prepare for the future. I mean, you have university, you have driving tests, you have so many different types of tests that you go through in life. And I, and I understand that, but I also agree with Elizabeth where it shouldn't weigh a lot. There's mm -hmm. some, uh, subjects in school. There's some exams in school where they say, Oh, it's 50% of your grade. Um, that shouldn't be the case. It really shouldn't be the case for just one exam to be 50% of your grade. There should be assignments. There should be, um, other factors involved where, this could be like 15% of your grade or probably less, uh, to, in my opinion. Yeah, for me, like, there, I, I have the positive experiences. Like, I remember in grade 12 English, I ended up having a perfect score in the exam, which I, you know, to this day, I still question very much whether my my teacher actually went through it because I don't think anyone should. Run. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, was gonna, I was going to celebrate that to the moon. But um, I, I also remember those, like, moments of anxiety when you would come out of the examination room, whether it was in a gym or in, in like, a, a classroom, and then you see your friends and your classmates who are also coming out, and you start comparing the answers and the responses and be like, oh, well, mm -hmm. what did you get for this? Oh, well, it's this, this, this. And then you start realizing, oh, no, I did not. That's not what <laughs> no. I wrote at all. That's completely different than what I thought. So I still, and, and to this day, I don't know why. It, it just kind of stays from me. I, I think a month ago, I had a nightmare that I was in school and I had to do an oh, exam. Man. And I haven't done an exam since, like, 2009, 10, I believe, because everything else, like once I got out of the university system and went into to college, the exams kind of went away. It was it was much more practical based. It was like, okay, apply your 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 knowledge and understanding, which I think is a much better method to do it. But mm -hmm. yeah, it, it certainly writing for two hours straight for an English exam is not an effective way of measuring uh, skill and competency. In my mind, you'd rather have someone be able to write, review, edit, script, 
a argument that is clear, that is uh, well laid out, but also hasn't the time to go back and review it because that's part of what yes. it is. Yeah, absolutely. Don't you just hate those exams that uh, they'll write questions, they all have like the same type of question, very similar to mm -hmm. each other so they can con mm. confuse you? Hate those. Yes. Or or when it, it was like a multiple choice and then you start seeing a pattern of like, every third one is C. Am, am I getting this wrong? Yeah, am is I it... trippy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Am I getting it right? Or are they purposely kind of tricking mm. me into this to make me doubt myself and my answers? And Elizabeth, you're in the education system. Does that ever happen? Is, is that a purposeful ploy to trip up students? You know, sometimes I, I will say to students, like, you can be guaranteed that not all of them are X letter. So if you're, you know, you're seeing that, I think we're really trying, especially in health, where there's so much nuance and critical thinking to get away from <clears throat> multiple choice. It, I think it happens in undergrad, where there's just too darn many. If you have 600 students in your, you know, introductory to social determinants of health, you have to do multiple choice. But, you know, we, tr I think there's a lot more, um, you know, we try to vary it up. I will say, um, you know, in grade 12, you mentioned English, Alex, uh, our exam was to pretend to be a character from Hamlet and write a diary entry. And I pretended to be Ophelia and that, that was fun. And then I put in the little Simpsons cause there was a Simpsons parody of Hamlet. So I actually <laughs> added that to the end of my response which my teacher I think felt uh, a little bit, uh, you know, happy to see because there's so much sort of tension around exams. But yeah, I think, you know, as educators, we do try to think about the fairness and weighting, even the sections of an exam, whether it's multiple choice, true, false, short answer. Um, and I think to Nizreen's point, for sure, just thinking about, you know, how how we weight exams and, and what they look like. But um, yeah, I, th I think for sure it's an important part of just sort of preparing a life skill that people, you know, need to be prepared for. Okay. Uh, quick final thought on this. I want to find out what was your approach to studying for an exam? Nisreen, we'll start with you. Ooh, sticky notes. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, those, the small cards, I forgot what they're called. Cue cards? Um, cue cards. Cue cards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would write important parts uh, of, and cue cards were my thing and sticky notes. I And I love colors. So um, highlighting certain points was just kind of encouraging me to um, memorize some things that I need to memorize. So I don't know, my brain just kind of matched those colors and it just made sense to me. Uh, I still Perfect. hate those exams, so <laughs> it didn't really Fair. help. And Elizabeth, much. you got to be very quick. What was your uh, quick very method quick. of studying? All right, study with a partner, ask, quiz each other, ask each other questions, divide it up, and give each other honest feedback. And still to this day, that's how I do a lot of my PhD work. Maybe not an exam, but certainly papers, you know, sharing my work with partner and getting feedback. Very good. Elizabeth, thank you. Nisreen, thank you. Both of you have yourself a wonderful day, but that is all the time we have on the show today. Thank you so much for watching and listening with us. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you out there. You can all be my Valentine. A special shout out to my girlfriend, Audrey. Love you. Be sure to be kind to yourselves. Have a wonderful day. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. 
Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.